Tonight we're going to pick up in the book of Judges, chapter 9. As we work through the book of Judges, we encounter 12 of these deliverers, 12 of these judges. Uh, some of them we have long and extensive stories for, like Gideon, who we just finished, or Samson, who's still to come. Some of them only get a few sentences. But nonetheless, there's 12 of them. However, chapter 9 focuses on a man named Abimelech, who is not a deliverer. He's actually the son of Gideon, and so we're really continuing the story of Gideon tonight, and if you were with us last week, you know that it's somewhat in freefall, that that story has shifted from being, you know, in the classical sense, a comedy leading to victory and triumph, like we've seen with some of the other deliverers, to being a terrible tragedy. And so we saw that although Gideon kind of verbally removed himself from being king, He went on to behave like a king. He married a whole harem of women and sired 70 sons. Uh, He took uh, like taxes from from the warfare, all of this gold for himself. Uh, And then he names his son, one of the 70, Abimelech, which literally means my father is the king. Okay. Abimelech is the legacy of Gideon. And it is not a good legacy. One of the things that we're going to learn tonight, remember that the whole context of the book of Judges is one of God bringing about consequence on his stubborn people. He had warned them all the way back before the days of Joshua, all the way back in Deuteronomy, if you settle into the land and you worship their gods and take their wives and live like they do, then I will bring judgment upon you. And so we've been in this pattern of Israel forsaking their God, of God giving them over to some sort of judgment, usually in the hands of an enemy army like the Philistines, They begin to cry out to God, and then he raises up a deliverer. But what we discover in chapter 9 is they don't need external destructive forces. Just the Canaanization, if you'll allow me the word, of Israel is inherently destructive in and of itself. You see, God's rules that he made for Israel to follow when he says repeatedly, do not be like the nations in the land, are not merely arbitrary. They really are for Israel's protection. And so as they begin to drift away from God, they also drift into destruction. Okay? Sin leads to death. And that goes all the way back to the garden. It goes all the way back to the warning that God gives Adam and Eve. If you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. And so all sin leads to death, to corruption, to isolation, to decay, to separation, to conflict. And so as they move further and further away from God, generation after generation, they start to reap the consequences of what they've been sowing. And Abimelech is one of those consequences. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, actually, before we read that verse, let's double back to just verse 34 and 35. 
says in chapter 8, verse 34, the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return to all the good things that he'd done to Israel. And when we read that last week, it almost seemed out of place. There was no evidence of that, and so maybe it was just an offhand afterward. But actuality, it's a preview of what we're going to read tonight, okay? And so with that, chapter 9, verse 1, Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them, and the whole clan of his mother's family, okay? So apparently, one of the many wives Gideon had taken was a Shechemite. And as we will come to understand, that's not an Israelite living in the town of Shechem. That's a pre-Israelite Shechemite. In fact, they're later going to draw their heritage all the way to Hamor, okay? He's like the original Shechemite. Uh, he's, he's the one that, uh, that Jacob and his sons deal with all the way back in Genesis. These are old school Canaanites, okay? And so he comes to them knowing that these are his half-brothers, the entire village, because his mother came from them. In verse 2, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. Now, interesting note there, the word there for leaders is the same word that we've been using for the god of the Canaanites, Baal, which is actually just what Baal means. It means Lord. That's their title for their god. But we see how, uh, how correlated the civil politics of Shechemar, okay? There's this lord and there's these lords, right? There's a relationship between their governmental offices and their gods, and so he comes to the leaders of Shechem, not just, not just the average neighbors of Shechem. He says, say in all the leaders of the Shechem, which betters for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And so he says, here are your choices. Gideon's been ruling over this territory, operating like a king, even though he's one of them Israelites. What would you rather? Would you rather have 70 of his sons in his place, or would you like me? Just little old me, who I will remind you, he says, is your own flesh and blood, or in the more Jewish idiom, flesh and bone. Flesh and bone just speaks of kinship. Remember what Adam says when he's introduced to Eve? Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's a statement of closeness. He says, look, we're, we're basically blood relatives. Now, ask yourself this question. What are Abimelech's qualifications for ruling? He doesn't give any. The only one he gives is is that he's a blood relative, and then the implied one is what? Ambition. He wants to be king, okay? And so he comes to get their support, and in verse 3, his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he's our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Berith, okay? Baal, once again, is their god. Berith means covenant, So out of the house of their God, Baal, the Lord of the covenant, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. So he puts together a mob, okay? He hires a bunch of worthless and reckless people, effectively a hit squad. We'll see what for just a second, but basically what has he done? He's turned his family 
into the financiers of his rebellion. Okay? This is the type of person that Abimelech is. Okay? So what happens next? Verse 5, he went to his father's house at Oparah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. Okay? And so he routinely or ritually executes all of his half-brothers. 70 of them on one stone. And so imagine here an ancient butcher's block. Okay? When it says on one stone here, what is it implying? It's implying how, uh, how systematic this was. Right? He didn't raid their houses and try and take out as many as he could along the way. He rounded them up and killed them one after another, 70 in a row. Okay? It's brutal. This is how Abimelech comes into power. Where is this happening? In pagan Egypt? No. This is in the land of Israelite, the son of one of Israel's great God-given deliverers. Okay. You see, I think one of the things we need to recognize about the book of Judges as a whole is it's effectively a story about generations. In fact, it's got a repeated refrain that shows us one of the great flaws of forgetting to think in generations. Here's what it is. After every deliverer comes up, while that deliverer, while that judge is ruling and reigning, for the most part, Israel toes the line. They come back to the Lord and they follow, but when he dies, and when that generation dies, what happens? They go back to where they are. That's effectively a legacy problem. That's effectively a failure to impart a true relationship with the living God, Yahweh, to their children. And so their children grow up in this Canaanized world, and they f forsake the formalism of their parents and turn to the much more normal practice of their neighbors. Does it sound familiar? Okay. There's a generational issue here. Israel is failing in what Deuteronomy called them to do, which was every day in every instance, over every meal, constantly be communicating to their children who God was. You may remember in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that they're to write these things on their doorposts. They're to wrap it around their wrist. It's to constantly be on their lips, all the time communicating these things. That's what's missing. And so the threat we see in Israel is always a generation removed at most. And here's Gideon, and he starts well, raised up by God. God demonstrates that he's on Gideon's side. Tremendous victory. And then the power goes to Gideon's head, and he starts to take advantage of it. And he starts to set up worship that's a little bit more Canaanite-friendly. And he develops this whole life and lives out, at least lives like a king, as if he doesn't take the identity. And so what do we find? We don't find a son like young Gideon, young Gideon who's a little bit insecure, young Gideon who knows the living God. We find a son like old Gideon, a power-hungry monster who slaughters 70 men who share his own blood through his father's line so that he can be in charge. There are two different ways, there's probably more than two, but these will serve us for tonight, two different ways to think of authority, two different ways to think of leadership. 
One of them is based around power. That's Abimelech. His basic premise is the strongest man wins, and sometimes if you don't have the strength on your own, then you can use your cunning to supplement your strength, to get people on your team, to build out your regiment, right? And then to, uh, to destroy all opposition, right? Now there's no one else who's even bloodline qualified to rule in this mock government set up by Gideon. He's the only one left, okay? But what we're going to see is everyone in this story, except for one exception, thinks of authority, thinks of leadership in terms of power. That's really a shift. When we, begin, we, when we begin in the book of Judges, these are men who have been raised up, yes, as judges, yes, as deliverers, but ultimately as servants. In fact, if we try and trace the lineage between the book of Judges and what comes beforehand, whose footsteps are they following in? Joshua, the servant of the Lord. Moses, the servant of the Lord. And those are two very different power structures, two very different ways to think about authority. One says authority is ultimately for my glory, ultimately based on my strength, and ultimately, uh, you know, accomplished with force. But the authority that God is always imparting to his people, demonstrating to his people, calling them towards, is an authority of service. So Jesus really hammers this home himself when he says, you know that all of the nations, their authorities lord it over one another. They use it to its full privilege. They wear it like a badge out in public and they put people in their place beneath them. They use it to climb the ladder on the backs of those who are beneath them. And Jesus says to his soon-to-be apostles, okay, significant authority, God's representatives on earth. He says, but not so among you. But if any of you seeks to be the greatest, you must be the least. And then he points to himself. He points to himself as the Messiah. Whatever the judges are in concept, Jesus is in reality. These are the deliverer prototypes. Jesus is the real deal. And so he comes as the king of the Jews. The king that later in the book of Judges, it constantly reminds us in those days there was no king in Israel. The king that they need. The one that is at least a little bit better pictured by King David, but still he's not the fulfillment of this promise that is to come. This one who will come from Judah. And so when Jesus comes, he says that. Don't be like the other nations. And then he follows it up this way in Mark 10:45. He says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We couldn't very well get any different than Abimelech's heart. Abimelech says, you will all die for the sake of my position. And Jesus says, it is my position for, to die for you, right? But that's where Israel is at. They've lost this paradigm entirely. They've adapted fully to the Canaanite understanding of power, the human understanding of power. And Abimelech personifies that, but notice in the story that he's not the only one. So he carries out this massacre. And then verse 6, the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. He has everything he's wanted here. He wants power. Now, once again, what's the value to the Shechemites? 
The only thing he stated earlier is it's better than having a bunch of people rule over you, and at least I'm your flesh and blood. But it's worth asking, why didn't they go, wait a minute, we don't want anyone to rule over us. Why don't they set up a democracy right there? Okay. There are benefits to government. And so the question becomes, how is the government of Abimelech? And that's where we get next in verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim. Now, Jotham, uh, I feel like we missed this and read it. So go back to verse 5. He went at his father's house in Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left, for he hid himself. Okay, he's the sole survivor. And so he comes up, and let's just, let's just read this like a Hollywood film. What are we expecting? Jotham to come out on top. He's going to disappear from the story in just a moment. He serves a very different purpose. He's the one unique person who's not after power here, but he does come speaking for God. And so this is what happens, verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Now, Mount Gerizim we know from earlier. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim is where when Israel came into the land, half went up one mountain, half went up the other, and as the law was read, the blessings were shouted amen on one side and the curses on the other. At baseline, what that tells us is that this is a relatively good space from an auditory concept, right? It's a good place to talk from. So it's above Shechem, and he can speak probably on a low crag that's out of the way so he can get out of Dodge quickly, but get many of the Shechemites' attention and address them directly. And this is what he says. Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Okay, notice he draws God right into it, and he says, you need to listen to me so effectively God hears your prayers to put you back on track. Verse 8 He tells a story. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, you come reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? You seeing a pattern here? Most commentators believe there's a reason why we encounter here the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine. It's because this is the upper echelon of agriculture in the land of Canaan, okay? If you've read the Bible at all, you encounter regularly olive trees, fig trees and vineyards. It's a major part. And notice the trees come and they say rain over us and the response is always the same. I'm already doing something of service to everybody. Why would I do it just to rule over the trees, to hold sway over the trees? Notice though, each one of them responds with this service mentality. Because of me, I bring joy to gods and men, says the olive tree. Very similar says the fig tree. My sweetness is available to the gods and men. Uh, And then with the vineyard, my wine brings joy, it brings pleasure. I'm content with my place. And so that leaves the trees still looking for a king. So verse 14, then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. Now notice the difference there. Olives, fruitful, 
general staple of Israel, Israel life. Figs, same thing. Vineyard, pleasure, joy, bramble. It's basically a weed. I mean, bramble here speaks of something that only produces thorns. But they're out of options. Effectively, everyone else has said no, and so they come to the worst option available, and they say, you reign over us. Verse 15, the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. Do you hear the the pompousness of that statement? Have you ever taken cover from the sun under a bramble? There's not a lot of shade. It doesn't even have leaves. It's just vines and thorns. That's all there is to bramble. In other words, the bramble basically says, I can do the job. I'm great. I'm exactly what you need. And so he says, the bramble says to the trees, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Notice there, the bramble and the trees have something in common. They're flammable. This is Jotham's point. This is why he set this whole thing up. He's basically saying, by choosing Abimelech, you are guaranteeing mutual destruction. Okay. But I want you to notice that as we watch this play out, this isn't a fire from heaven story. This isn't God, you know, bringing about some sort of unexpected, supernatural, miraculous judgment. What we're going to see is just exactly what you would expect. Okay. This story reads all of chapter 9 like a show we would watch on HBO. This is Game of Thrones. That's what this story is. And that's one of the great flaws of this approach to authority that is power-based. I mean, first and foremost, the paranoia it produces when you worship power. When you say, power is how I get what I want. Power is what keeps me on top. Because what happens with human beings? First off, there's a whole lot of unknown power out there. Second, what do we do as we age? We get weaker. There's an old um, Twilight Zone episode where this, this ancient woman comes to a dictator who is surprisingly Cuban, comes to a dictator who's just won out in a revolution and gives him a gift, a mirror that shows him the face of his enemies. And so he sees he's been given a gift. He's like, all right, I can protect myself now. I can hold my power but he sees in the mirror his cabinet, his assistants, those who are right on the front line, and so he begins to systematically take them out until he's the only one standing, and you find out at the end that it's just a normal mirror. Right? The paranoia just comes with the reality that there's no way to trust those who are closest. What family does Abimelech have left to trust when the way that he got to his place was to slaughter all the others? But nonetheless, we also see that there's a problem with those who put Abimelech in power, right? They're okay with his ambition. Why? Because it's to their benefits. He can, they can ride his strength to their privilege. And Jotham just says it's a trap. He says the place it leads is destruction, and it's going to be mutual. So, verse 16, 
Jotham speaks, he tells us the meaning of the story. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and you've dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house, and have done to him as good deeds as his deeds deserve, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. Now, remember, the Shechemites, for the most part, are pagans, but they were under the thumb of these invaders, these um, Bedouin tribes, the Midians as well. They benefited from Gideon's deliverance. And he says, if you've just selected another king in good faith as an act of honor to Gideon, but Jotham knows better, and so do we, right? What does good faith to Gideon look like? All of his children are dead. Jotham knows that. He's the sole survivor. He's not giving them an option. He's not saying, hey, if you guys are really doing the right thing, then more power to you. He's just pressing home the reality of what's going on, the way that they went about things. He says, my father risked his life. How different is that than Abimelech? Gideon's on the front lines, putting his life on the line to save others. Abimelech is putting the lives of his brothers on the stone, one after another, because they're in the way. And so, verse 18, you've risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, kings over the leaders of Shechem, because he's your relative. Have you ever noticed how poor judgment nepotism is? Like a true nepotism. I mean, sometimes the best person for the job happens to grow up in your house. But obviously, generally, that is not a pre-qualification for success. In fact, sometimes it seems to be the Achilles heel of success, doesn't it? Right? Here's somebody who, from the ground up, built an empire from poverty to riches, and the son knows nothing of that work ethic. Right? There's this issue here, but he basically says the only thing you've done this for is your own benefit, but it's actually going to bring about their own destruction. And so, verse 19, if you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. Mutual benefit. But if not, let fire come out of Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Now, interestingly enough, we know lots of places that have beer in the name. This is the only place where we have beer lift, listed as it's a name itself, because all it means is well. Okay, so we have the well of this and the well of that. Those names are very common in the Old Testament. Most likely, when it says here he went to Beer and lived there, he found a well and hid there is the idea. Okay, he doesn't flee to a location. He flees to a cave. He flees to hiding. That's the end of the Jotham story. The only purpose he serves in the story is to present how far away Israel is and the coming consequences now, if you have paragraph heading in your Bible, and it starts a new paragraph here, it probably says, like mine does, the downfall of Abimelech, but I want you to notice how it plays out. Phase 1, verse 22, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Okay, first off there, when it says that God sent an evil spirit, two things. One, we clearly see God's involvement in the story, Right? The narrator just tells us that what's about to happen is from God, of God. Second, when it says evil spirit here, don't think impish-like demon. 
most likely the concept here, it could be something like that. It could be some sort of spiritual force that God allows, but most likely the idea would be translated in modern parlance, bad blood. Okay? He just creates or cultivates conflict. But once again, that's not, even if it's God-given, it's not what we would call supernatural. It's exactly what you would expect in a situation like this. Because the thing is, sooner or later, and we'll see why in just a second, they're going to go, why did we do this? Abimelech's really not that great. Are we sure this is the ruler we want? You see, if it's an angry mob and some, you know, uh, some self-interested financiers backing you, then there's risk in your authority. And so here we just get a little under the hood look, but let's look at what actually uh, happens here. Verse 24, uh, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brother. In other words, just like Jotham said, God is going to bring consequences because of this big um, plot. Verse 25, the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way, and it was told to Abimelech. So phase one... They start to set up angry mobs, you know, the same people that Abimelech employed, that he bought with their money, around so that, uh, so that Abimelech can no longer guarantee safe travel, effectively. Okay, and so tourists passing through, other Israelites, anyone who's not Shechemites is getting regularly and consistently robbed. Okay. Now, notice here it says it was told to Abimelech. That's the end of that. That's not going to come up again. It's just this problem. Abimelech has nothing he can or apparently nothing he's going to do about it. He's just going to live with this. Okay. Now, if any privilege is true or any benefit is true of monarchy, security is supposed to be on the list, and that's just gone. And it's gone because of the same people who put him in power. But that's only Exhibit A. Notice Exhibit B here, verse 26. Gaul, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. Just some outsider, just some random guy, but we'll see in a second, he's a lot like Abimelech. He talks a big game. And so, verse 27, they went out in the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival, and they went into the house of their God, and they ate and they drank, and they reviled Abimelech. Okay, so they get a little bit tipsy, and they begin to talk about how terrible a leader Abimelech is. And this outsider, Gaul, says, all right, this is the opportunity to talk. And this is what he says. Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? We of Shechem, do you hear that? Gaul is an outsider. He just moved in with his relatives, but now he's one of the real ones, right? This is so tactical. In fact, it's so tactical that we're going to see the same thing played out very closely when Absalom tries to take over the throne from David. He starts to stand out with the real people, and he basically says, look, everybody, I'm one of you. I resonate with where you're coming from. Unlike King David, way up, protected in his palace, away from all these things, I know what it's like. He doesn't. He grew up in the palace that he despises. Gail knows nothing except opportunity. And that's where he speaks from. 
And so Gal, the son of Ebed, said, Who's Abimelech? And then who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel and not Zebel, his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? He says, we have our own authorities. We have our own history. We have our own past. He goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, generations and generations, and says, we should be on our own. Verse 29, would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. Now, remember, this is drunken speech here. This is party talk. And basically what he says is, if only you would give me charge, my only job, the only thing I drew is drive out Abimelech. He's just as self-interested and conniving and clever as Abimelech is, right? That's what's going on. He's just another bramble. But he's just as full of it as Abimelech is, right? We, we have no history of, you know, um, tactical excellence here. He has no standing army. He just has liquid confidence. And he speaks his mind. And he says, if only you would put me in charge. So, verse 30, when Zebel, the ruler of the city, a general of Abimelech, one of his representatives, civil government, heard the words of Gaul, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled, and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly. That's important, right? While the party's going on, he quietly sends somebody um, you know, up the chain of command, saying, Behold, Gaul the son of Ebed and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city, and when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. And so he basically says, look, we've got to nip this in the bud just quietly while the party's still going on, surround the city, and as soon as the sun comes up, they haven't done anything yet, right? He hasn't even gotten Shechem to agree yet. He's just made a bold-faced threat. And so he says, just gather around the city while it's still the cover of darkness. Be ready in the morning, okay? Verse 30, when Zebel the ruler, nope, verse 34, so... Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies on every side. Verse 35, Gaul the son of Ebed went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city, and Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaul saw the people, he said to Zebel, look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebel said to him, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. What's Zebel doing here? He's just buying time. Okay, here, here Gaul is standing, you know, it's the morning after, he's a little bit hungover, the bright sign, sun is getting on his nerves, and he sees what looks like, at a long distance, a moving army. He says, is that people? And Zebel says, no, nah, you're, you're seeing things. And then, verse 37, Gaul spoke again and said, look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. In other words, it's all around us. Verse 38, then Zebel said to him, where's your mouth now, you who said, who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these people, these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaul went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him and he fled before him and many fell, wounded up to the entrance of the gate. Okay, and so in other words, the ambush works perfectly. Before they can really gather themselves, there's no strategy, they're totally surrounded, and so they start to turn tail and run, 
and Abimelech chases them down. And then verse 41, Abimelech lived at Armah, and Zebel drove out Gaul and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. So he drives out all the Shechemites, okay? Not just Gaul and his followers, but the entire city. And we find out more about this here, verse 42. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told, okay? Why are they in the field? They're getting back to the harvest. The festival they were having is a first fruits thing. Now they got to get back to work. So they're just going back to their daily lives. Gaul is gone, but as we just read, he takes vengeance on the city. Verse 43, he took his people and divided them into three companies, set an ambush in the field, and he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them, and he killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them, okay? So two of them focus on attacking all the people in the field. The others cut them off before at the city gate and stand guard, so there's nowhere to run. Verse 45, Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. He raised the city and sowed it with salt. Now, side note on that last phrase there. Uh, Salt, like other chemical concoctions, makes land barren, okay? But Sowing enough salt to make an entire city's vineyards barren is a whole lot of salt. Most likely here, this is more of a religious representative cursing than an actual, um, what would we call that, chemical warfare, okay? Uh, Which, once again, points to the type of ruler Abimelech is, okay? Not only is he destroying or hoping for the destruction of the land that his people live in, you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, when they're sieging a city in Israel, they're not even supposed to cut down the trees to make battering rams, because those trees will eventually be their trees, okay? Abimelech has nothing here in mind but vengeance. There's no long-term plan. What he wants to see is no one live in Shechem as a representative of no one standing against him. That's what this really is, okay? And then on top of that, verse 46, when all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth, okay? And so there's this other structure in town where the remnants, including the leadership, flee to, a tower of some sort. Verse 47, Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went out to Mount Zalmon, and all the people were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood, and took it up and laid on his shoulder and said to the men who were with him, what you've seen me do, hurry and do as I've done. So he goes out, he cuts a big branch and puts it on his shoulder, hands the axe to another man and says, do the same and follow me. And it goes through this whole thing until they've all got a big piece of wood on their shoulder. Verse, um, verse 49, so every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, they put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died about a thousand men and women, okay? So the remnants go into this stronghold and he just surrounds it in wood, lights it on fire, and burns it to the ground. Now, one thing that we should point out here is this sounds a lot like the words that we read earlier, doesn't it? It sounds just like the warning of Jotham that fire would come out of the brandle and burn Shechem to the ground. And that's exactly what happens. However, that's not the end of the story, is it? It's not the end of the warning. It was not just the Shechemites who led to the killing of the 70 sons of Gideon, but also Abimelech himself. And so the story here continues. Verse 50, Then Abimelech went to Thebes, 
and encamped against Thebes and camp captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the women and men and all the leaders of the city fled into it and shut themselves up, and they went up to the roof of the tower. Deja vu, right? What does Gideon think? I know exactly how to deal with this. I've already done this once, right? And so he goes about it the same way, different city here. So verse 52, Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull, okay? That's relatively brief, but picture this with me, okay? It just says a woman. We don't know who she was, but she smartly, from the top of the tower, picks up an upper millstone, which you should think is um, about 18 inches wide, about three inches thick, with a hole in the middle stone, okay? So just the fact that she gets to this wall is a significant deal. This is a heavy object. And she just leans over the edge, and while he's kindling a fire at the front door, he just, she just lets it fall, and it strikes him right in the head. Okay. Now, let's look at what happens next. Verse 54, Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. You know how much of a deal we make out of the last words of somebody before they die? What is Abimelech's great concern here? His power, his reputation. Let it never be said that some weak woman put me to death. At least you kill me with a sword, right? He is so consumed. It's hard to even relate. Notice also, Notice also that he killed 70 of his brothers with one stone, and now some strange woman kills him with one stone, right? There's a fittedness to what happens here, but ultimately it's the fulfillment of the warning. Fire would come out of the bramble and consume you both. And what's crazy is the fire here is not some fire from heaven, it's the fire kindled in Abimelech's own heart his obsession with strength, with power, with his own reputation, with vengeance, with holding his position, and it's what comes to destroy him. Thus, we get the commentary here. Uh, verse 5, when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which was committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. And so here we're starting to get a feel. We've talked about this before. In the book of Judges, you don't just have a cycle, you have a spiral, and it's getting worse. Okay? And so with every generation, Israel is becoming less and less distinct. Now we're seeing it in the judge's own family. The delivery of Israel's own son becomes the bane of Israel's existence. Chapter 10. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel. Notice the difference there. Never said of Abimelech. That's not something he does. But after that time, the cycle returns with this guy Tola the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, then he died and was buried at Shemir. Incredibly short story. Bare facts at best. I mean, this is, this is brief for an obituary, isn't it? That brings us to ask the question, why then does it include these stories? Why tell us something that really tells us nothing? 
And one of the reasons clearly is because there's a significance in selecting 12 deliverers. It's probably a good assumption to assume there were other things God was doing in Israel. All of these deliverers that we've been reading at are working in one small part of Israel, some of them simultaneously. This is the deliverer of Ephraim. This is the deliverer of Benjamin, right? And so it's just this general period where the cycle's kind of recurring everywhere, but the author includes 12, not just to make us think of the 12 tribes of Israel, but he actually selects 12 judges, one representing each tribe. Some of them are easy to notice that. We notice here that he's a man of what tribe? Issachar, okay? Others, we have to do a bit more homework, and what we discover is the names we find in genealogies for particular tribes. You know how families carry on names? Okay, that's true of the tribes of Israel, too. And so some of them are named uniquely tribal names. And when you put them all on a map, you get all 12 tribes over the course of the book. Okay? In other words, the author wants us to understand that this isn't a local problem. Even though it's playing out in local ways, it is a national reality of the degradation of God's people. Okay? So after Tola, we get another one. After him rose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rose on, rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities called Habath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died, was buried in Canaan. Now, notice there, no mention of saving Israel, just judging Israel. And there's a shift here in the book that stays consistent from here on out. Um, all of the miners that we're going to read tonight from this point on, we just see them basically operating like government officials, not warriors. In fact, notice here that he has 30 sons who ride on 30 donkeys and extend his power, right? And so what we're seeing is, once again, more ruler than deliverer. And the commentator here doesn't give us any information on bad or good. These are just the things that are going on. And so here, it doesn't say that God appointed, like we read with the earlier judges, just he arose and he ruled, okay? Now we get to another, uh, what would you call that? Status update on Israel. Verse 6, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now, that sounds similar to what we've read over and over again, but I want you to notice how thick the author lays it on this time. Serve the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve them. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. Now we'll read tonight about the Ammonite story and then next week with Samson about the Philistine story. This is setting up the rest of the book effectively. Okay, which was in Gilead, verse 9, and the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Okay, so we see two ampings up here. One is now they're serving all the gods, and not just the gods of the land, the import gods that came with the import people, like the Philistines, the newcomers. Anyone they can find to worship except Jehovah, they like, sign me up. I'll take the mailer, please. Thank you very much. Uh, and then on top of that, we don't just see a local single tribe judgment here. Now the Ammonites come in, and they're not only inflicting Judah, but also the Benjaminites and Ephraim. Okay? It's getting bigger. God is clearly trying to get their attention. And notice verse 10. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. 
Once again, this repeats the pattern and escalates it. And Israel cried out to God, we've read so many times in this book. It's just a normal flow in the cycle. But here, they not only do that, but they proclaim, we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. They don't just say, help us. They say, we have sinned. We've not actually read that since the very early book of Judges, since the first two chapters where Israel actually makes a confession of the problem. We've just seen them crying out in pain and asking for deliverance. But here, there's a confession. Verse 11, the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Manites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand? He says, we've been here before. How many times do I have to deliver you? And he says, verse 13, you've forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I'll save you no more. Go cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. He says, no. I'm familiar with the pattern now. I know what happens here. The only reason you're really crying out is because things are bad. And so he says, these gods that you love so much that you keep forsaking me for, ask them for help. And he continues, verse 15, the people of Israel said to the Lord, we've sinned. Do whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. Now, at first, that actually sounds like the right answer. God says consequences aren't changing, and they basically say, we're still in the wrong. Do whatever you want. But the important phrase to notice is, except just deliver us this one last time, right? It's very similar to the words of Saul. When, when Samuel comes to Saul, because once again, he has disobeyed God, and he says, at this point, Saul, your kingdom is over. God's going to give it to another. None of your sons will rule, and your rule is coming to an end. And Saul says, yes, 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 I've sinned before the Lord. Just go with me before the people. In other words, just don't tell anybody about it. Let me enjoy the fame a little bit longer. Really, this just shows the depth of the problem of their heart. They know the language of repentance. But all they really want is whatever goods God has available, not God himself. So we get there, and then notice verse 16. They put away foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So they go through all the practices But notice what God says here. He's impatient over their misery. The thing that moves God to act any further in the book is not their repentance. It's his compassion. And that's actually a really important lesson for us. God makes mercy available for us, but it's not our repentance that makes it deserved. Or it wouldn't be mercy. I love that hymn we sing sometimes that says, basically, could tears forever flow? Not for sin could it atone. Remorse is not what brings about forgiveness. Forgiveness stems not from our fixing it, not even from our turning away from our sin, but God's tremendous compassion and ultimately in the action of that compassion, in Jesus taking what we deserve upon himself, right? And so, even though he says, I'll deliver you no more, he actually does. And so, verse 17, the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. 
And the people, the leaders of Gilead said one to another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now there's an echo there. You might not have caught it, but the book begins with this, with all of Israel gathered asking, who should go out first, Lord? Judah should go out first. And so Judah goes into battle. But here, God's not on the table at all. They're just scrambling for a fix. And where do they turn again? They look for a leader. Who is the man who will lead us? Is the question that they ask. And then they incentivize it. Whoever it is will be our king. Okay. Now, if you read Joshua, Judges, and 1 Samuel together, you'll understand this in its context. Israel wants any king but the king that they have. And so they're making a mistake here again. And the king that they get is Jephthah. But I want you to notice that Jephthah doesn't sound like Gideon. We don't see a prophet coming like in Deborah to Barak saying, you should lead. We don't see an angel coming in the, like in the story of Gideon and saying, Gideon, you are the man that God has chosen. We just see Jephthah chosen by the people. And we will see that God uses him mercifully. But we will also see the type of person that Jephthah is. Notice here, verse 2. Uh, verse 1, now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warder, warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Okay? So notice his lineage here is not great. In fact, once again, we see an earmark of where Israel is at. Prostitution is happening in Israel. And Jephthah is a bastard son of a prostitute. Okay? But he's also an Israelite from the land of Gilead. Verse 2, Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you'll not have inheritance of our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So notice here, it begins with rejection. The story of Jephthah's life is because you're not actually inside the family, because you came, you know, from a franchise of our father's, you know, sowing of wild oats, you have no part with us. You don't get any of our dad's inheritance. You are not one of us. Be gone. But we also know here that he was a pretty solid warrior. Recognize, we've just gone back in time. He's just giving us the backstory here, right? It's not while Israel is gathered going, who will lead for us? Suddenly Jephthah is born to a prostitute and they wait 20 years till he grows up, right? It's feeding in the backstory to set up something. And one of the things I want you to notice is that Jephthah simultaneously is going to play the part of Israel and the part of God. And so here he's rejected even though he'll come to be the one they really need. But simultaneously, simultaneously we'll see here Jephthah is a perfect stand-in for Israel. So verse 3, Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah, and he went out with them. He becomes a raider. Okay? Think Alibaba and the 40 thieves. That's his position. He has nothing else. He has no inheritance he has no place to live, and so he goes, he gathers up like-minded individuals, and he begins to rob and raid, and that's where he gets all of his military experience. Verse 4, after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, bringing us back to the end of chapter 10, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. See who comes and gets Jephthah here? Not God, go and deliver my people. Israel, come and be our leader. Okay. 
Verse 7, But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? Right? He's just pointing out the obvious thing. Oh, now you need me? Now I have value in your eyes? Verse 8, The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites to be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so they say, Incentive, you can rule over us. We'll give you not just your place back in dad's family, but we'll give you the first place. We'll make you our ruler. Okay. Verse 9, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. He accepts it. Now notice here, he brings God into the equation. He says very clearly here, if God gives them over to me, if God gives us victory, right, there is some orthodoxy to Jephthah's life. But there's probably some orthodoxy to the elders of Gilead as well. But as we've seen, the state of Israel is mixed. And so, he accepts their deal. Verse 10, the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So they take an oath in the name of the Lord. We promise that if you deliver us, you will be our king. Okay? There's ritual here. There's, there's a veil of orthodoxy. But underneath, we wonder... Verse 11, so Jephthah went to the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah, which means they made a covenant. Verse 12, then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, what do you have against me that you have come to fight against my land? Okay, now once again, here's another advantage to monarchy. He can speak for the whole nation. What do you have against me? That is, what do you have against my land? In other words, what do you have against us? But it, it uh, cultivates the possibility of diplomacy because one can speak for all. Okay? So he's out there and he's doing it. And notice where he starts. For a raider, he does pretty well. This is relatively diplomatic. He goes, hey, what's the problem? And so, verse 13, the king of the Ammonites answered, the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from Arnon to Jabok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. And he says, basically, Israel stole our land. He's like, these are our borders. Now it's your land. We want it back. Now, actually, that's not historically accurate. The Ammonites enter into Israel in a different place and in a slightly different time, and the land here that's up to debate, actually they have no part with. And we have to wonder what the Ammonite is doing here. He may just recognize the fragmented reality that is Israel. Okay? He knows enough to know that they came from Egypt, and so in the midst of the chaos, he basically tries to stake a claim on something that's not his. That's probably the best way to read this right? It's like if, um, if a really wealthy man had, um, had an inheritance that was relatively broad, and the house is in shambles and chaos as people are picking through the stuff, and a couple of opportunistic passerbys just slip into the house and take, and they're just like, oh yeah, I'm a long-lost cousin. It's a con job. That's what this is. But Jephthah knows his history, and so he responds, verse 14, Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and he said to him, now I want you to notice here, he doesn't just say let me teach you the facts. 
he presents certain facts that also make an interesting case. And so verse 15, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness of the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Okay, so first off, he says, we didn't take your land. In fact, let's go back to the history when we first encountered you and the Moabites. So verse 17, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. He says, actually, we came to the borders of your land as well as Moab and Edom. And we said, can we just pass through? In fact, literally what Moses says is, let us pass through, we won't drink from any of your wells, we won't graze in any of your fields, we're just trying to get to the other side. And they say no. So they take a huge, peaceful detour around that land, and then verse 18, they journeyed through the land of the wilderness, and arrived at the land, uh, and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab, and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab, and camped on the other side of Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Okay, so he's making clear here, they came all the way past the Moabites, which means also the Ammonites. There's probably some sort of an allegiance here, so he's dealing with them both. Instead, they came to the land of Arnon. Now, here's the problem. There is no getting around this place to get into the promised land. There is no detour that they can make. This kingdom goes all the way up the Jordan River, blocks the entire access to the land of Canaan. And so here's what happens. Verse 19, Israel sent messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites. Watch that. You know, when we're dealing in other languages, it's hard to keep track of the similar. This is an Ammonite king in conflict with Jephthah. Now we're talking about the Amorites, not the same people, okay? It's like if you know a, um, a Jeffrey and a Jaffrey, Right? Not the same person, probably going to cause some confusion. So these are the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through the territory. So Sihon, that's the king of the Amorites, gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. What do they get here? Not a no, they get an attack. Okay? All of the land that the two and a half tribes inherit from Sihon and Og is because they brought a peaceful request to pass through, and in response, Sihon and Og attack them and lose, okay? Uh, verse 20, Sihon did not trust, so he encamped at Jaaz, fought with Israel, 21, and the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, so they defeated him. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. It's almost as if he says here, there are two similar stories, the one we had with your people and the one we had with these other people. But with your people, we peacefully avoided you. And side note, the ones who messed with us didn't want to mess with us, right? That's the undertone of this conversation. But he's also clarifying the facts. So uh, he also makes clear here that God is the one who gave them the victory. God is the one who gave them the land. They didn't take it for themselves. This wasn't a land grab. This was self-defense and God gave them victory. Verse 22. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from Arnon to the Jabak, from the wilderness to the Jordan. Those or boundaries sound familiar? Those are the disputed ones, okay? 23, so the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before the people of Israel. And are you to take possession of them? He basically says, you have no claim here. And then he continues. He says further, 
Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, super side note, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but Chemosh is actually not the God of the Ammonites. He's the God of the Moabites. And so some people read this and go, wait, is that a historical error? I would suggest not, and here's why. Because if you read very closely, the Ammonites we're dealing with now have Moabite territory. And so effectively, he's saying, can't you just settle for what Chemosh gave you? Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, has given you his land. What does that have to do with our land? Okay. Now, it may be here that that says something about a lack of orthodoxy. That he basically says, your god gives you gifts, my god gives you gifts. What's the problem? But... Uh, But moving on, verse 21, now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel or did he ever go to war with them? Actually, the answer is yes, but not over land, not a land dispute. Okay, verse 26, while Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aor and its villages and all the cities that are on the bank of Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? So the last thing he invokes here is kind of a statute of limitations. He says, why is this suddenly something you want to talk about when we've been here for generations and you've never once raised your hand, okay? Now that history is conveniently forgotten and neglected, you suddenly stake a claim here, okay? So he makes a relatively well-rounded case, and we should probably give Jephthah credit for trying here. It doesn't work. The Ammonites are still going to attack, but he does try and resolve this peacefully, Verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Now, Jephthah is kind of the centerpiece of the book. He's not the the centerpiece in terms of the 12 judges, because there's no center to the number 12. But because we have this Benjamite episode at the end, he's really at the heart of the book. And notice the words that come out of his mouth at the dead center of the book of Judges. The Lord be the judge. You see, it is true that in the book of Judges, God divinely, out of mercy, raises up judges. But if you want the theme of the book, God's a better judge than people. And behind any human deliverer was really just God delivering. And yet they rejoice in the human and neglect the true judge, neglect the deliverer. But he also calls God in to abdicate. Here he just says, the Lord determine." If you're right and I'm wrong, he basically just says, don't expect to win an unjust war. Okay, verse 28. But the king of Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. This is something we've seen repeatedly over and over. This is divine empowerment to do the job. It's the most significant in Samson, right? Samson, when the spirit of the Lord comes upon him, he does the impossible kills a hundred men with the jawbone of a donkey, right? Takes the pillars of the Philistine temple and topples an entire building. Superhuman strength. But in the book of Judges, it generally serves the fact of God's divine empowerment. And God does that with Jephthah here. Now, here's the thing, just a side note. There's probably not a significant experiential tangibility to this, okay? And here's why I say this, okay? because Samson doesn't notice it's missing. Samson's head gets shaved because he finally gives in to this prostitute woman, uh, Delilah, right? He's sleeping on her lap, and he wakes up, and he's surrounded by enemies, and it says that he went out 
just as he always had, not knowing the Spirit had left him. Okay? <clears throat> but the idea here is what's about to happen is not just God-ordained, it's God-empowered. God uses Jephthah. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead, and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah and Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. Now, this isn't said, but probably the passing on there is like a Pied Piper thing. As he's going, he's gathering an army. Okay? As he's moving towards the Ammonites, he's recruiting, just like we've seen the judges do in past stories. But notice verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And so here he makes a vow. Now, the spirit of the Lord is already upon him. I would say there's no experiential reality of that, but I would also add that Jephthah should know. He should know here that what God is doing is based on God's favor, and so really what he's doing is trying to seal the deal. And so he makes a vow. He basically says, if you do this for me, I will do this for you. And what does he say? The first thing that comes out of my tent, I will sacrifice to you. Now, it is possible that he is assuming that Rover, or I don't know, his house camel is going to be the first thing out of the tent. But that's probably not the case. The way this is written linguistically, he expects it to be a human being. What he doesn't expect is it to be his beloved and only daughter. But remember, he's got a big house. He's got lots of wealth. He knows lots of people. Don't just think of a camping tent. Okay, this is a tent palace with lots of servants and workers in the fields and all of these things. Any one of them you can have. I'll kill them for you, God. Here we get to the heart of Jephthah's worship, and it sounds like a Canaanite. In fact, one of the great warnings that God makes of Israel before they get in has to do with the worship of the god Molech. And Molech received regularly and consistently child sacrifice. And so Jephthah looks around and he goes, the way that they incentivize their gods for victory, I will do the same. Okay? This is not a good thing. In fact, maybe you're going, but honestly, isn't this a lot like Abraham? Isn't Abraham's son Isaac offered up as a sacrifice? In fact, God, doesn't he command him from heaven to do so? How is this different than this? Listen. God's plan with Abraham, first and foremost, is after 25 years of a man clearly learning that he hears God's voice. This is not a sudden thing that hits you while you're washing the dishes. This is after a long and consistent pattern. Second, God is doing it, it tells us right in the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 2, to test Abraham. His intentions there have to do with Abraham and not his bloodlust. But most importantly, Abraham's giving of the gift that God has given Isaac, this miraculous son, has nothing to do with Jephthah's self-intention. I mean, just think of this for a second. Any human in my household you can have if you give me victory. The self-interest at the cost of another is a horrifying thing. And it's completely missing from the story with Abraham. 
But we don't need to feel the need to justify Jephthah. His horrible act here is the point. Okay? And so he makes this promise, and probably you're already getting a sense, you know, a darkness, a kind of famous last words feel, as you should. It's written that way. But, verse 32, so Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites to fight against them. The Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aor, the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities as far as Abelkemim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Huge victory, no details. Do you feel how the author's almost rushing to get past this? He's like, God did exactly what he was going to say now about that vow. And so, verse 34, then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. Okay, and so she comes out in joy and celebration. Dad, you're victorious. And then it adds, she was his only child. Now that stands really strong because when you put him up against the other judges, what have we been learning over and over again about the minor judges? 30 sons. In a second, we'll read 30 sons and 40 grandsons. One daughter. One daughter, and she comes out rejoicing. And as soon as he saw her, verse 35, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord. Side note, opened, Jephthah. That's what his name means. It means to open. And he couldn't keep his mouth shut. Ecclesiastes warns about making a rash vow. And this is obviously the one we always point to. Because it's just so foolish. What was he expecting to happen? The first one out of the house is the daughter that he loves. And then he blames the daughter. You have ruined my life, is what he says here. Now, some of that is probably fatherly grief, but that's not the whole story. What does it mean that this woman is his only son or his only daughter? It means that here ends the lineage of Jephthah. No children, no grandchildren, no descendants, no continuing clan of Jephthah. This is the end of the legacy of Jephthah, and that's what he mourns here. In fact, he mourns here so much that she mourns here. Notice, he says, I cannot take back my vow, verse 36. And she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord to do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I might go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity and my companions. And so she says, you've got to do it. God gave you the victory, you made the vow, just give me time to mourn. And she doesn't, it's not even her death that she's mourning, it's her virginity. Now that's probably significant for her as well. You know, not having a child in Israel for a woman was seen as being a curse. Why? Because the promises God gives the descendants of Abraham are yet to be fulfilled. And so your longings are attached to the generations that follow you. Okay? That's why when Jesus becomes, uh, you know, the seed the son of Abraham, the promised one, and we're grafted into Jesus, we get all of the benefits, but the expectations for family changes because the one we are waiting for has come, okay? But in Jephthah's day, this ends all of his expectations, and his daughter feels it, and she mourns for it. She takes two months off, 
Verse 38, he said, go, then he sent her away for two months and she departed. She and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. Now, some suggest here what he actually does is devote her to lifelong service for the Lord. But let let me just remind you that it says, I will offer it for a burnt offering. It's pretty clear what happens here. Uh, And we don't know why she would need two months to mourn her virginity when she can do that the rest of her life. She needs two months to mourn her virginity because two months is all she has. And so he goes through with it. He kills his daughter to keep his vow, and it is a horrible thing. There's only one thing more horrible here, because we can rightly recognize that unlike Abraham, God does not tell Jephthah to do this. Jephthah says this is something he will do, but it does not remove God's silence. It doesn't remove the fact that God doesn't intervene. In Romans chapter 1, it talks about the fact that because people reject the truth of God, suppress the truth and unrighteousness, he gives them over. And that's what happens to Jephthah. That's what's happening to Israel. Do not be deceived, Galatians says. Whatever you sow, you will also reap. If you sow corruption, you will reap death. And if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap life. God doesn't interfere here, and that's a horrible thing, but the horror is all Jephthah's. So at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who he did what according to his vow that he made. She'd never known a man as it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, for four days in the year. Now we're starting to notice a pattern here I just want to be really quick on, which is in the beginning, women in the book are respected and highly treated. In fact, we see two heroes in the book. First, we have uh, Jer, who kills uh, this evil general by running a peg peg through his head in the days of uh, uh, Barak and Deborah. We have Deborah, the prophetess. And then we have this unnamed woman who takes the life of Abimelech. From here, the treatment of women really starts to go downhill. And notice here that the women, the daughters of Israel, go out and mourn what is clearly and obviously the sins of men. Jephthah's big mouth, his vow, his false worship of God, and she bears the brunt of it. Now, I wish we had time to talk about this, and we really don't. We'll leave 12 for another time, but let me just hit this before we close. When the Bible says that Jesus came to deal with sin, we generally focus on the fact that he came to deal with the sins that we have done to bring about forgiveness. But we need to also recognize that Jesus' death deals with the sins that are done to us. And some of us have experienced deeply the reality of other people's sins, and we bear the scars and the pain in what feels like the most permanent way. Shame is a major aspect of this, right? Shame doesn't always come from your own behavior. It often comes from the response to the behavior of others those things are also dealt with in the cross of Christ. Justice, vengeance, the removal of shame, the full dealing with sin, the sum total is what God is doing in the cross of Jesus Christ. And the book of Judges is a low point that just, that just, we should stand in the days of Judges with the knowledge we have and say, come Lord Jesus. Just like we do in our own times when we look at the world we live in and all of the horrible things. But when the Bible says that God's plan to deal with sin is Jesus, 
It's not just forgiveness for the sins we have done. It's also to set right the sins that have been done against us. That's why it says in the book of Revelation that when Jesus comes, he will wipe away every tear. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing that you can use a person like Jephthah. And the author of Hebrews even uses him as an example of to say, this is what faith is like. It's hard for us to read that. It's, it's why it's a misnomer to call the book of Hebrews chapter 11 the heroes of faith because some of them clearly are not heroes but they did trust you where they were at in the mess that they were in the mix of all that they were, Lord. And the glorious thing, Lord, is we don't, we don't tap into who you are in our perfection but faith is just trusting in your perfection. There's so much to dwell on and to think about there, Lord. I pray that as we go, we would process these things. We would really look deeply into the horrors of humanity and rejoice in your plan of salvation. I pray this in your name. Amen. Have a good night.